So back at chapter 1, just so we build a little context, I'm going to start reading in Habakkuk 1, verse 1, and we'll read through 2, 5, through 6. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my my Holy One? We shall not die. And and you, O O Lord, you have obtained or ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch posts and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write this vision. Make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Let's pray.
Father, would you please show us the ways in which we think that we could govern the universe better than you. Expose in our hearts, God, the ways in which we wish that we could control your actions. God, teach us to repent of these things. Help us to see that you are the one who commands the universe. You know the end from the beginning and everything you do is right. And God, in the midst of that, would you also please comfort us with hope. Help us to grieve the horrific realities of sin in this world. Help us to be broken over sin in ourselves. God, may we long for justice, and yet, God, may we also rejoice that you're a God of mercy. Would you make us righteous by our faith and teach us to walk in faith? In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever ever wished that God would just come to this earth and just put an end to sin? Maybe, maybe, maybe you've wished this because you've been sinned against. So someone's wronged you, and you just wish that God would come with thunder and lightning and strike dead the wicked. Like, if that's where you're at, like, to you it seems that God is being inconsistent, right? Evil has been done. God judges evil, so, like, come on, God, get to work. Do what you're supposed to do here. See, but that's not how God's justice works. Though God does judge evil, he always does it with patience. After all, if God always brought swift and wrathful judgment against every sin, what would that mean for you? You're a sinner. The wages of your sin is death. And so if God judged you in your sin the way that you would want him to judge your enemies, you would have nothing but wrath as well. See, what makes the justice of God so troubling to us and so compelling at the same time is that he often delays his justice to show mercy. This is why we don't just say that God is just, that he's fair, that God executes his wrath on the wicked. We also say that God is good. Right? He's patient and merciful. He doesn't just mechanically pour out wrath on sinners. He he actually invites sinners to repent and receive his grace. The Bible will teach us that out of the riches of God's mercy, he makes sinners righteous through the death of Jesus Christ. We praise God that his justice is not swift. That's why we call it good news. It's good news that God would delay his wrath so that you and I could be saved. But that doesn't eliminate the reality that God will judge the wicked. But but you and I are not in the place to demand when or how he's going to do that. This then brings up another tension, another problem for us. Not only does God delay his justice, but when he does, we feel as if God has also delayed his goodness. Right? People who love God suffer. Your suffering isn't because you have sinned. Your suffering isn't because you deserve it. 
We endure illness and persecution and exile and uncertainty and death by the sovereign hand of God. Which is why in these times we're left troubled. Because we wonder if God would let us suffer, is God really good? He is good. It's just that as his justice is delayed, sometimes his goodness is also not experienced immediately. What we need then is something to sustain us, right? Between the time where we are broken and the time when God will restore. We need something that gets us through. We have to look beyond our circumstances then and trust God. Or to say it more simply, the righteous shall live by faith. That is probably the most famous phrase out of Habakkuk. It's probably, maybe the only reason some people have only ever heard of Habakkuk is because of this great phrase from chapter 2, verse 4. But we have to understand it comes in a context. It's not just a cute phrase. So let's zoom out a little bit and get the the context. Remember, just two weeks ago, we started Habakkuk. And in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk invites us to wrestle with God with him, to kind of come side by side. He is, as a prophet in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, he's troubled by the sin that continues to persist in his nation. Rampant idolatry, child sacrifice, the law, he says, is paralyzed, the wicked overwhelm the righteous. And so he asks God, he calls it a complaint, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, why do you, speaking to God, idly look at wrong? He's asking, essentially, God, like, aren't you going to do anything about the evil Among your people, we phrased this in terms of God's sovereignty a couple weeks ago. God, aren't you sovereign? Don't you have to do something about this? Are you in control? Of course, God very calmly answers in in verses 5 through 11, I am sovereign. I will bring justice. This great phrase in chapter 1, verse 5, look and see among the nations, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, I'm going to do something about this. And if you get on the edge of your seat and you're hopeful, good, God's going to bring justice and it's going to be good and righteous. He says, I'm bringing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the wicked, bloodthirsty, merciless nation, and they're going to come and swiftly destroy Judah and Jerusalem and it's going to be awful. So Habakkuk says, aren't you going to do anything? God says, oh yeah, I'm going to do something unbelievable. This, this of course, knocks Habakkuk on his heels a bit, right? He, he thinks that God's going to bring justice, and instead God is really bringing destruction. He, he wonders then, is God really going to crush his people with the, the sword of a wicked nation? Now, now, instead then of Habakkuk's like initial concerns with God, not about being sovereign, being answered, he's now left with even deeper concerns and questions for God. You just, just pause here for a second and realize this. There will be times in your Christian life where you will deeply question God. Where he will do things and he will bring things and he will he is. God, and the way he is, will bother you. Sometimes the truth about God and his will and his character and his ways will only drive you to deeper doubts. What is crucial then is your response. 
will you curse God because you don't like who he is? Or will you seek truth? What we learn from Habakkuk is how to seek truth when we're knocked on our heels. Notice first in verse 12 of chapter 1, he leans on a foundation. He questions, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So in, in his doubt, notice what he does. He goes back to certain truths when, when, to, in order to understand the ways of God that confuse him. So he first starts with, okay, God is everlasting. God is eternal. He knows the end from the beginning. That puts God is big, we are small. Habakkuk knows he's just a man, so he acknowledges that God's ways are not his ways. He also says that God is holy. That is, there is no evil in him. And this is a great truth to acknowledge. God always does what is right. That's why Habakkuk can say, we shall not die. It's an interesting phrase. What does he mean by this? What he's doing is he's applying truth about God to his present difficulty. So he's saying, if God is going to bring Babylon to destroy Judah, the the southern kingdom of Israel, does this mean that God has rejected his people? Does this mean that God has abandoned his covenant, his promises? No, God doesn't break his promises. So this is why when Habakkuk says, you know, God, you're, you're sovereign, you are holy, you are righteous, you are eternal, I can trust then that you will not abandon us. We shall not die. Therefore, we, we get an expression that Habakkuk is resting in the sovereignty of God. He, not just accepting it. Not that Habakkuk just drags his feet and says, whatever, you're God, I'm not. But he's resting in it. He says, you have ordained them. That is, God didn't just allow the Babylonians to come. He purposed it. He orchestrated it. He commanded that the wicked Babylonians would come as judgment. He says, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. That is to discipline the people of God. This this is what we do when we wrestle with who God is and what he has done. And we doubt him and we question him. We humbly submit to God that his ways are right, even if we don't understand them. But, 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 but you don't just have to blindly submit to God and say, okay, your ways are right. I don't know what I'm talking about. R- rather, God does not expect you to have a blind or unquestioning faith. Notice that Habakkuk doesn't just acknowledge that God is God, I am not, and move on with his life. No, he, he actually searches for an explanation. He complains to God that he might know truth. Verse 13, he says, You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Like, that's a legitimate question. God, why are you doing this? He, he, he goes back to a truth, right? God cannot see evil. He cannot look at wrong. What, what does that mean? This is figurative language. Now, just, just think about it. If God cannot look at wrong or see evil, would he ever look at this earth? No. He would have to be completely disconnected. 
Rather, the, the picture is that God does not linger over evil. He doesn't gaze at it. He doesn't tolerate it or condone it. He does, he's not entertained by sin. Habakkuk says, if you, you, you can't sit here and just watch this happen, right? You're holy. So he asks, why are you going to let the wicked Babylonians ravage the righteous in Israel? Not that everybody in Israel was righteous, right? The reason for the first complaint is that they weren't. But there were people who truly loved God. There were people in Israel who really trusted the Lord. There weren't any in Babylon. So why would God allow his people to suffer at the hands of evil people? That's really what's at the heart of Habakkuk's issue here and his complaint. Because if God is really just, shouldn't he be punishing Babylon as well as Israel? This is what what Habakkuk unpacks in verses 14 through 17. And this is a little tricky, but just just follow the pronouns here. English isn't helpful, but, but it'll get us there. Habakkuk 1 verse 14, he's speaking to God. He says, you, well, let's insert there. You, O God, make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So God has made everyone. And Habakkuk kind of gives these painting a picture as if all the people on the earth are just kind of swarming around like a bunch of fish. Then Habakkuk turns to Babylon. He, some of your Bibles might even translate that, Babylon or the Chaldeans. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. This, this is the picture. If the nations, if the people of the earth are fish in a sea, then Babylon is the master fisherman. I read somewhere a scholar that noted that Babylon, the, 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 the great nation of Babylon, the ancient nation, would actually use metal hooks through the lips of their captives to drag them from city to city. None of that. They would throw them in nets and drag them on the ground. So this very well could be a very literal picture of what Babylon did to their captives. Whether, whether it, it, that or it's a metaphor, the, the, it's very clear. Babylon violently mistreats people created in God's image. How could God let that come to his people in Israel? And he goes on to focus on Babylon's idolatry, right? Therefore, if he drags his people to the net and hooks them, this whole fishing imagery, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Right? This is idolatry. And is not that the way that our sinful hearts work? We worship things that satisfy us today. We worship the things that make promises of temporary pleasure. Oh, my net brings me fish. I'll worship my net. My net makes me rich and happy. I'll worship my net. We are made to worship the creator, not the creation. So Habakkuk takes up issue with Babylon's idolatry because idolatry is adultery against God. They're idol worshipers. Why would God let idol worshipers crush those who worship the one true God? So so if Babylon's so evil, how can it be that he's going to let this happen? Not just to Israel, but any nation. Verse 17, is he, is Babylon then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Do you see his issue? God, how can you let this go on? How And still be good. 
What's unique about Habakkuk is not that he whines to God or he accuses God, but he waits for God's response. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. See, this is what makes Habakkuk's complaint a godly complaint. He actually wants to know what God has to say. He's not whining or cursing or slandering. He actually believes and trusts that God can give an answer. And so he sets himself in a place to see and to listen to what God is going to say. Now, now, that means that when you doubt God, when you have questions against God, when you're troubled by your circumstances, it is not wrong to question him. What is wrong is when you question him without an ear to hear, without a desire to actually know from God what he has said. In your trouble, do you seek the scriptures to see what God has said about your plight? Habakkuk humbly submits his complaints to God. He looks out and to see. Notice what he says, what I will answer concerning my complaint. Did you catch that in verse one? What I will answer. So he wants to know what God's going to say. And then he says, I want to know what I'm going to answer. Habakkuk is ready to be corrected. He's ready to be taught. He's ready to learn from God. If, if truth about God is troubling to you, or your circumstances fill you with turmoil, or temptation overwhelms you, you're right to run to God if you're humble enough to receive his answers. So you should seek the Lord. Seek him to change your mind. Seek him to calm your heart. Let him correct you. Let him make you righteous so that you can live by faith in him. Because God will answer. He answered Habakkuk. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. This is interesting because before God tells Habakkuk his plan, he first tells Habakkuk that he needs to rest on something unchanging about God's character. God says, write down what I'm going to show you, right? Write down this vision, but not on a scroll. Notice he says, make it plain on tablets. In other words, he's telling Habakkuk, write this in stone, etch it down. So that messengers, so that he who reads it may, who you may run who reads it. The idea there is that messengers can take this from city to city and say it over and over and over. It is an unchanging truth. God's justice against the wicked is an unchanging truth. But before you can trust God and his plans in the world, you must first believe that God is unchanging. You must first believe that God's justice is good. Why does God need to tell Habakkuk this? Hey, write this down. Pay attention. Get this. Etch it in stone. Because so often we have a skewed perspective on our circumstances. We feel as if God has abandoned us. We think that God is delayed. We wonder if he's not paying attention to the world we live in. But he's trying to remind us that his timetable is different than ours And his is actually good. So he says in verse 3, The vision 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. You get that picture of delay? This could take a while. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. See, see, God's justice may be delayed, but it will come. God's goodness may seem delayed, but it will come. He goes, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. See, this, this is one of the most difficult realities that we face as followers of Jesus, as lovers of God, is that sometimes it will take time for us to see and know the character and will and ways of God. Now, time, long, patient waiting, can be a tool of Satan to cause us to doubt God, but it can also be a tool of God to teach us to trust Him. It would be nice if all your temptations went away today. It would be nice if cancer was cured. It would be really nice if all your conflicts were resolved. If all depression was lifted up into happiness. If all the emptiness that you feel would be, feel would be filled now, today, without it ever changing again. But that just isn't how God works. Sometimes God intentionally appears slow so that we can learn to trust him. And, and this, this always makes his goodness on the other side of our difficulties all the more sweet. Because God has never changed. God always shows himself to be right. He always shows himself to be good. But, 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 but there's a flip side to this. Not, not just that, that God will show himself to be good. We should wait for him. And, and if it seems slow, just to trust. Because and, and, it, it might delay, but it won't lie. We look to this with hope, right? God's going to do something good for me. But, but realize there's a flip side to God's unchanging character is that he will bring justice to the wicked, to the prideful, to the immoral, to the oppressor. He will be judged. Most people memorize Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, part B. But don't miss Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, part A. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. This is a promise that this wicked nation of Babylon would not escape the wrath of God. Oh, if Habakkuk is upset that a wicked nation is going to crush the people of God, God says, I'm still going to crush that wicked nation. They still will be judged. They're not getting a free pass here. And this he goes on to unpack in verses 5 through 20. Verse 5, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So so he gives a a picture uh, of Babylon, which was known for their drunken revelry. As a matter of fact, when they were conquered, it's because they were all drunk. Now listen, he says though, he gives this picture because like with wine, an evil person drunk with power will wake up drowning. He says, not all these take, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. In other words, God's saying, all the violence of Babylon is coming back to Babylon. That will be next week's sermon. 
But on the flip side, what we want to meditate on and enjoy and love today is that God who judges the wicked does not forget the righteous. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There is hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of exile, in the midst of a world falling apart for the righteous. There is life for the righteous. Why? Because God is for the righteous. God God invites then Habakkuk here to trust that God is just, that he'll punish the wicked. But he also invites Habakkuk to trust that he is good. He will remember the righteous. And this is why, I'm convinced this is why this short little prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved in our Bibles, this little book of Habakkuk is given to us. Because people that love God, people that trust God, people that have been made righteous by God, we need to be reminded that we have to live by faith. We've got to be reminded to look beyond our circumstances, no matter how good they are or how miserable they are. We need to go back to hope that is etched in stone. God is good. He is just. You can trust him. See, for Israel at the time of Habakkuk, for the nation of Judah, they're about to go into exile. They need this message so that while they're camping in Babylon for 80 years, God would, they, they, would, they would look to God to sustain them. It, would be, it wouldn't be their comfort that would bring them life. For Israel and Babylon, it, it wouldn't be the fact that they had nice little homes and lived in peace that would bring them hope and joy. What sustained Israel and Babylon was their faith in God. Habakkuk would not live to see the end, at least probably not unless he was ridiculously old. Most of the people who felt the tip of the Babylonian spear never returned to Jerusalem. 80 years, roughly, from the time they first started taking exiles. 70 years after the siege of Jerusalem. They needed something that would sustain them in exile. And their hope was that the righteous shall live by faith. Which should lead us, of course, because we like to ask tricky questions, Who are the righteous? Well, certainly in Israel, in Habakkuk's time, not everybody. There's a reason for Habakkuk's first complaint, right? We've already established that. Rather, the righteous have always been and will always be defined by their faith. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, to the person of Abram or Abraham, we learn a lasting truth. Genesis 15, 6. Should write that verse down, go look it up, circle it. It's very short. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In times of peace, in times of exile, I don't care what times, those who believe in the Lord are righteous. They're counted righteous by God. Faith in God. We, we even, we'll get here in a moment to this Reformation principle, this biblical principle 
that we are justified, we are made righteous by faith alone. That has always been the case. So, so, so for Israel, the righteous who live by faith are not just those that say, well, we were born into the right nation. No, their hope was that God does not forget the righteous who live by faith. In Exodus 19, God promises Israel, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So, so if you translate, if you have faith in me, God says, You shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is very similar to what Habakkuk says in chapter 1, verse 12, when he says, we shall not die. He's stating a general truth that those who have faith in God will be saved by God. God does not forget the righteous. The righteous would be sustained in the destruction and exile of Judah Because then the righteous who are not forgotten by God would on the flip side not forget God. So so, so just just imagine what Israel went through. They're being marched away from their home. They're suffering under a wicked king. They're forced to labor, forced to pay taxes, forced to suffer. How are they going to get by? By faith in God. They will look up and wait for the Lord. They will find comfort in the fact that someday... For a lot of them, many, many years down the road, God will judge the wicked. They find hope in God who is good to the righteous. If you you want to see this principle played out, just pay attention to your Old Testament prophets. You could read the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is the testimony, is the outplaying of Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by their faith. Because Daniel's faith was great. And his suffering was great. And he endured in Babylon for the whole 70 plus years. But of course, in the scope of redemptive history, and the exile in Babylon was relatively short. None of us are living in Babylon, specifically or literally. Eventually, God brought his people back to Jerusalem. He reestablished them as a nation with a king and a priesthood and a temple. So, so if, if this word from Habakkuk to Israel was there just to sustain them, why should we care? But I think it's significant that God didn't tell Habakkuk, hey, write this on a scroll so that 80 years down the road you can pitch it in the garbage. You don't need this truth anymore. He says, write it on a tablet. Write it on stone. This clues us that this glorious truth of God's goodness and God's justice, then and now and forever is true. The wicked will be punished by God, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is a Christian truth. It's a truth that you and I must live by. The righteous will live by faith. Because just as in Israel, you and I are made righteous by faith alone. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 1, one of the few places in the New Testament where Habakkuk is quoted. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, so you catch this, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and it is received by faith. Let's break that down. How is the righteousness of God 
The goodness of God, as we've said, the justice of God, the sovereignty of God. How is this revealed in the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. Well, it's revealed in that God did it. The Son of God became flesh. He lived a sinless life. He laid his life down as a sacrifice, a propitiation, as Logan said for us, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice to God. He suffered the wrath of God in your place. He rose from the dead, victorious over death. He promises eternal life to all who have faith in him. He empowers us to walk in newness of life. This reveals the righteousness of God because God who does what is right has promised to bring eternal salvation and he did it. He showed that he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Which means God's righteousness then for you and I is received by faith alone in the gospel. See, this is why we can say confidently, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. Saved by God from the wrath of God. You are made righteous. That's what that word justification or justified means. God has made you righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So so this is why we call this good news. Because if you want to know God, if you want to know righteousness, if you want to know forgiveness, if you want newness of life, it is freely offered to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God will declare you righteous. And this gets all the more better because those who are saved by faith alone also live by faith alone. The righteous, Paul writes, shall live by faith. See, we we need this promise. We need it because we live in a world where Christianity does not promise comfort and perfection. It's a world of suffering a world of persecution and sickness and pain and sin and death. See, Christianity is never a promise of an easy life. God does not promise you riches or good health. He does not promise you that you will not struggle. God does not promise you that you won't have to face cancer or depression or dementia or back pain, or stress, or sleeplessness, and on and on we could go. God does not promise you that temptation will not come with an onslaught. But here's what God does promise. The righteous shall live by faith. God does not forget the righteous. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, In this world you will have tribulation. Promise. Jesus didn't say the word promise. I'm I'm inserting that there. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So in in suffering and difficulty and turmoil and doubt, we look back to the cross where Jesus conquered sin and death forever. We look forward to the return of Christ when he will finally consummate the end and he will abolish sin and death from his eternal world. God's justice will come. God's goodness will come will come, the cross promises it. So when you face suffering and temptation and sin, 
when you feel the weight of your worldly flesh, the Bible would describe it, warring against the Holy Spirit that's inside of you, what do we do? We look up. We wait and see. We know that someday God is going to make all things new. He's going to give us a new body with new desires. And that, that hope is what sustains us in a world that is horribly broken. So that then we don't just walk around moping that we've got to wait for the justice and goodness of God. But that we actually live righteous lives of joy. First Peter captures this exile mentality of Christianity in chapter 2. And he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Is that not the same thing as Habakkuk saying to Israel, the righteous shall live by faith. You're going into exile. Trust the Lord. So when you face persecution and suffering and difficulty, don't lose heart. God is working. His plan is bigger than you can see. And his plan may include your suffering. But it will also definitely include God's justice and his goodness. He will do what is right. With justice for the wicked, he will bring mercy for the righteous. We love these glorious promises from Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, most things work together for good. I love it when you guys laugh because you know your Bibles, right? This is, or you're looking at your Bibles, right? No, no. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I would never wish anything bad to happen to you. I wouldn't want that. I don't want, I want you to get sick. I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to be persecuted. But when tribulation comes and when this life presses on you and wrecks you, I do want you to rest in this truth. God is working all things together for good, for your good and his glory, which means you can trust him, which means if you love him, If you've believed in Jesus, you can and you will live by faith. Of course, a lot of times we just want to know, how how does that work? And we can look at Habakkuk for a pattern, but I think God really gets back to the core of it. We must believe that God is eternal, that God is holy, that God is just, that God is good. And when you believe that, when you, as Habakkuk did, he sat, he waited, he watched, he wanted to see what God's response was. We do the same. We look to God so that we can behold God. So that we can have a true and clear perspective on this world and on our difficulty. And the good news for us is what was once a mystery has now been made known in Jesus. We behold God. We behold the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to see God's justice in judging sin when Jesus dies. We get to see God's mercy in offering a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins when the temple curtain is torn. We get to see God's faithfulness as he sustains Jesus through death and burial and into resurrection. 
we get to see God's goodness when he raises Jesus from the dead. We see God's certain promise that Jesus will return. We can trust him. I, 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 God is not idle. He isn't ignorant of your circumstances. He sees you. He is sovereign and he is good. If he seems as if he's delaying, just trust him. I know a lot of times that those words seem kind of empty. You're in a difficult time, and I just wish I had the right thing to say to you as if with a couple of sentences I could just fix all your problems, which just doesn't work. That's God's job. But, but, but really, sometimes all we can say to each other in times of difficulty is, trust the Lord. He is good. And those are not empty words. They are words etched in stone. God is good. You can trust him. And in this world, you will have trouble, but the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. God, please teach us to trust you. I I pray, God, that we would learn the easy way, that you would help us to see that you're good and to believe that you're good and to trust you. God, that you would not have to discipline us to teach us this. You would not have to ordain suffering that we might repent and learn. But God, whatever your hand directs, whatever you bring into this world, whether good or whether evil, whether we have abundance or we are in need, may we truly believe that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. May we live not by our hope in the possessions and comforts of this world, but our hope in the justice and goodness of God that will someday come to completion in eternity. God, may we trust you. I pray that you would help us in our suffering. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.